Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. All right, Proverbs chapter 20. Believe it or not, we are not too far from the end of our Proverbs study. There are only 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, which means we've really only got 12 more to go, including tonight. I, every week, have tried to make some sense out of each chapter by trying to find thematic elements that I can bring out. It's funny because the NASB has a tendency to give chapter headings to everything. So at the beginning of chapter 20, it tells us what the translators think this chapter is really all about. But they even gave up as of chapter 19. Uh, Chapter 19, they titled it On Life and Conduct. Chapter 20, On Life and Conduct. Verse 21, On Life and Conduct. Chapter 22, On Life and Conduct. Chapter 23, On Life and Conduct. They've just given up. They just, there's too many proverbs about too many things. It's just too hard to find a heading for all of that. Friday afternoon game. (laughs) Exactly right. Just well close enough. Chapter 20 has yet again demonstrations of Solomon's overall theology, his understanding of who God is and what God is like, and our relationship to God. And so I'm going to start tonight by just kind of picking a couple of those verses out to kind of show you again Solomon's thoughts about our relationship with an absolutely sovereign God. You may recall that last week as we looked at chapter 19, we came across verse 21 that says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. We've pointed that verse out for the last two weeks because it's real obvious that Solomon's thoughts were men make their plans, men have their preferences about how their lives would go, but in the end, regardless of how men plan their lives, it is God's plan, it is God's counsel, it is God's determination that is ultimately going to come to pass. And in the last couple of weeks, I've said that does very serious damage to the notion of man's free will. Otherwise, men of their free will could determine their own path, and then God would have to let them do that because that's what they chose. But Solomon tells us that a plan can be made in a man's heart, but it's actually the counsel, the determination of God, that's going to be accomplished. Now look in chapter 20 at verse 24. This is almost like the sister verse to that. It says, a man's steps, now here the NASB inserts the word ordained, A man's steps are ordained by the Lord. If you take out the word ordained, the original Hebrew is closer to man's steps by God. It is God who determines the way that you go. You may have a plan in your head. You may have a way that you've determined for yourself. But in the end, his counsel is going to result because he's the one who determines even your steps. 
the way that you go, the way that you walk out your life. But then Solomon says, because a man's steps are indeed ordained by God, how then can man understand his own way? I've oftentimes said to you that I feel sometimes like a passenger in my own life because the bad things that have ever happened to me and the good things that have ever happened to me happened despite me and I didn't see them coming and the good blessings weren't anything that I earned and the bad stuff happened and it hit me like a Mack truck. I didn't see it coming and it's very reassuring to read in the Bible that someone like Solomon would say, the reason you don't understand your own way, the reason you can't comprehend your own life is because it's not up to you. It's up to God. And God already has the end determined from the beginning. You don't know what that determination is. You're going to make your own plans. You're going to make your own determinations. But it's ultimately the counsel of God who is steering your way. His plans are actually going to come to fruition. And as a result, you might as well admit that you, you really can't understand your own way. How many times have you found yourself thinking thoughts, saying things, doing things, going places where you thought, what am I doing? Here I am, I'm doing it again. I decided I was never going to do this again. Here I am again. I'm involved in this again. I swore I was never going to lose my temper again, and now I just ran off my best friend with my ugly words. Or I, I decided I was just never, never going to drink again. And here I am back in the bar. There are just so many examples that I could give of how we just really don't understand our own way. And the reason, Solomon says, that we don't understand our own way is because it is God who is determining our steps, determining what we're going to do, determining what way we're going to go. Well, that tells you a lot about Solomon's concept of God's sovereignty. He has said yet again, despite what you want to do, God determines your steps. God decides what's going to happen in your life. And therefore, when the good stuff happens... That's a blessing from God. Thank him. But when the bad stuff happens, that's also in the hand of an absolutely sovereign God. He's still doing it ultimately for your good and his glory. And as difficult as it is, you still need to praise him. You still need to worship him. You still need to thank him for being God in your life. How can you possibly understand your ways? After all, it's not you that decided them. So a man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Look back at verse 12 for a moment. <clears throat> Again, another comment about God's absolute sovereignty in the creation and sustaining of everything. Even the ability to hear the hearing ear, the ability to see the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. Solomon says that, then you go into the New Testament and you see Jesus take that very concept and make it a spiritual concept and speak about those who have eyes but cannot see and those who have ears but cannot hear. 
recognizing that it's God who has to give you both the ability to just physically hear and physically see because even the creation of something as complex as an eye or as complex as an ear, Solomon admits that it's God who creates them both. And then Jesus says that the ability to spiritually see or the ability to spiritually hear is also from God. So then which part of that relationship is left up to you? None of it. It's all up to God. The creation of everything that you are and every ability that you have and every ability to discern spiritual things is all up to God. But then back up to verse 9, here is Solomon's concept of our standing before that sovereign God. You know that we here at GCA do believe that men are depraved, that men are sinful, that men are fallen, and that the only solution to our fallenness is Christ himself. That idea is already planted by Solomon back here in verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? That's Fundamental to everything we believe, that there's no human being who can be good enough, can be righteous enough to cleanse their own heart. Instead, because everybody has a dark heart, everybody has a fallen, stony heart, then nobody can say, my heart is now clean because I'm the one who cleaned it. I cleansed my own heart. Solomon says, who can say, I have cleansed my heart and I am pure from sin? The answer is nobody can say that. So Solomon sees the universality of sinfulness, the universality of human depravity, and that is contrasted with the God who's in charge of your steps, who's in charge of your way. That's contrasted with the very God who made everything, including your eyes and your ears, and the ability to actually hear and see on a spiritual level. The same God who has to take out your stony heart and give you a heart of flesh. So Solomon's theology, his overarching theology, is very, very in league with what we believe to this very day. The couple thousand, well, three thousand years more or less, that have passed since Solomon said these things, hasn't changed the reality of who God is and who man is and what our relationship with him is. And that's reassuring. It's good to know in this world right now where everything seems to be in a constant state of flux, everything changes on a continual basis. It's really good to know that our theology, that what we believe is the same thing that Solomon believed, that his approach to the relationship between man and God and our approach to the relationship between man and God is actually very much the same, if not identical. So then let's go back to chapter 20, verse (coughs) 1, which is going to talk about not drinking wine, not getting drunk, And he's going to say that wine, he's personifying it here, wine is a mocker. What does that mean? It means wine makes fun of you. So much so that when you get drunk, you're going to behave in ways that are openly embarrassing. And the wine mocks you. And then he goes beyond wine and says strong drink 
Some commentaries will say that that would be a form of beer, something brought up from the grains or the barleys, whereas wine is brought up from the grapes. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. Has anybody here known an angry drunk? I've, <laughs> I've known, all the, all the hands went up. I've known many in my life, people who once they started drinking, you just wanted to get away from them because you knew for a fact that at some point they were going to fight with you. And the more they drank, the more angry they became because strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is drunk, whoever is intoxicated by it, is not wise. You can read that two different ways. Either once they are drunk and intoxicated, the decisions they're making are not smart decisions. You could read it that way. Or you could read it as, if you are the kind of person who wants to drink strong drink or wine, then you're just not wise. You're just, you haven't thought about the consequences of what you're doing. And if you continue in that behavior, it just does not demonstrate wisdom. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Ephesians 5.18 says, be not drunk with wine. So whether you were looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, of course, when Paul says that in Ephesians, he's comparing it to being filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's creating that contrast, but the rule... Old Testament or new, is don't get drunk. Don't overuse wine. Don't use wine to the point where you're (coughs) brawling, where you're fighting, and where you're not in charge of your own faculties and being wise. Look over at Proverbs 23 for just a moment. Proverbs 23, verse 29 starts, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounding without cause? Who has redness of eyes? The person who has that kind of woe and sorrow and contentions, everybody has it, but the one who also has the redness of eyes along with all those problems is the one who lingers long over wine. So this is something that Solomon brings up several times in order to say that wine does you a lot of damage. Alcohol does damage to you. Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. Verse 31 says, Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In other words, while you're still sober and looking at the wine and Say, oh, that's just very tempting. I just really want that. It looks great. It smells good. I love the bouquet. I I think I'm going to have some more wine because it's glistening to me. He says, that's the time to leave. That's the time to stop it. That's the time to get away from it. Don't look on it. Don't linger over it while it's intoxicating to you, while it's calling your name, while it's making you thirsty for more drink. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, because at the last, it bites like a serpent. Yeah, it looks attractive. But in the end, once you've drunk enough of it, 
It's going to make you a fool. It's going to make you brawl. It's going to make fun of you. It's going to bite you like a serpent. You're going to pay the price. And it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Anybody ever been drunk enough to see some strange things? That was way too much chuckling. Your eyes will see strange things. And your mind will utter perverse things. That's right. Alcohol will loosen your tongue. And you'll say all kinds of things you can't take back later. And people will remember that you said it, but you won't remember that you said it. But you will say all kinds of perverse things. And you will be like one who lays down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. If you're at sea in a ship and it's rocking and reeling with the waves, the place that is making the largest circumference shift is the very top of the mast. So if you were to lay down on the top of the mast, it's going to make you woozy as it weaves back and forth. It's going to make you dizzy and unsettled. And he's saying, that's what wine does to you. It makes you lie down in the middle of a sea with the waves and everything going on. You're never going to be settled. It's like laying down on the top of a mast. And then he says, they struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? And then I will seek another drink. That's pretty much a description of every drunk I've ever known. Not only do they go through the woozy night, not only do they see things and say perverse things, not only have they been struck like a viper, but then they sleep it off and they say, wow, that was a tough one. Oh, my head hurts. Boy, that really beat me up. And then they wake up and say, I need another drink. Little hair of the dog, I think. So while we're on the subject of wine, look over at Proverbs 31 for a minute. Proverbs 31 takes us to the end of Proverbs. This is actually one of the Proverbs of King Lemuel. It's an oracle or a teaching which his mother taught him. I'll start reading right from verse 2. What, O my son, and what, O son of my womb, and what, O son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, lest they drink and forget what is decreed, and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, yes, him who's dying. Give him strong drink. We even saw that demonstrated to some degree when Jesus was on the cross, and they took some vinegar and put it on a sponge and put it to his lips to act as an anesthetic. She says, Lemuel's mother says, yes, give strong drink to one who is perishing and give wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and let him forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. 
But she makes that very clear contrast between for kings and for rulers, for those who are in power, who have control over other people and who have to judge between people, don't drink because then you're going to forget what's already been laid out in the law, what has been decreed, and you're going to end up perverting the rights of all the afflicted that you're judging over. It is not right for kings to drink wine. So out of the last 12 chapters of the book of Proverbs, we get a very strong indictment against drinking, drunkenness, strong drink, wine. And the reason is not only because it will ruin your reputation and make a mockery and a fool and a brawler out of you, but also because it will hamper your ability to do those things that are right for you to do. Those appropriate motions in life, the appropriate judgment, the wisdom that it takes to walk out your life day to day, all of that is going to be compromised and made perverse by wine and beer. And I think, though Solomon didn't say it, I wouldn't be stretching those verses too far to say that that also applies to drugs or anything that changes your ability to think rationally. We're all the way to verse 2 of chapter 20, and I have 20 minutes left. (laughs) The terror of a king is like a growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his life. We looked at that last week, and so we will just assume that last week's comments on it are sufficient. Verse 3. Keeping away from strife, what is keeping away from strife? Strife in this context is arguing, competing with other people, fighting with other people. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man. In other words, if you know how to bring peace to a difficult situation, if you know how to temper your own judgments and not answer a fool after his folly and not accelerate a fight once it has already begun. If you know how to bring peace to people and keep away from strife, that's actually an honorable way for you to be as a man because the second half of that verse says, but a fool will quarrel. A fool will always quarrel. This is the verse that I almost posted on Facebook today. Because I saw a, uh, a little meme that said, how to start a fight on Facebook. Say anything, wait. <laughs> and that's a fact. There's just always somebody who's going to take a contrary position to everything you say. Well, Solomon tells us that we need to learn to just keep away from strife. Don't engage in that kind of fighting all the time and discourse with people that isn't going anywhere that just builds up anger and ultimately results in people saying ugly things to other people if you can forfeit that if you can stay away from that that is actually an honor to you rather than demonstrating your foolishness by getting into quarrels verse 4 says the sluggard does not plow after the autumn so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. This is another one of Solomon's proverb commentaries on the laziness of sluggards. Here he is saying the sluggard 
does not plow after the autumn. What he's saying is in the Middle East during those winter months, that's the time that you need to get out there and plow the land. That's the time that you have to get some seed in the ground if you want something to grow in the spring. The spring harvest and the fall harvest are the two big harvests of the year. But somebody who's lazy isn't going to go out and do that because the weather is not pleasant or it's a lot of work to get out there and plow. And if they don't put the work in in the autumn, when it comes to spring harvest, he's not going to have anything because he didn't do the work. Look at verse 13. Along the same lines, Solomon says, do not love sleep lest you become poor. Solomon, of course, several times has said that it's good to have a good night's sleep. It's good to be able to rest your head knowing that God's got control of everything. So he's not speaking directly against getting a good night's sleep, but he's saying if that's all you ever want is more naps and more rest and more sleeping, then you're going to become poor. So open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. Notice that in both of these examples, Solomon has said that the benefit of working hard, of being awake, of going out and doing the toil, the benefit is you eat. As I've said so many times in the Middle East, in the Old Testament, job one every single day, find food. The best way to find food is to plant food. But if you don't plant food in advance... You're not going to have anything to eat later on down the line. So Solomon's admonitions to the sluggard are you've got to get out, you've got to do the work, you've got to go out and plow. And at the same time, don't be so obsessed with sleeping, with resting all the time. Instead, open your eyes, get out and do the work, and then you're going to be satisfied with food. So the ability to eat is directly commensurate with the ability to get up and do what needs to be done. Verse 5 then. A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water. The word like in the NASB is added by the translators. A plan in the heart of a man is deep water. But a man of understanding draws it out. I think what Solomon is talking about here, as many times as he has said that it's wise to listen to counsel, good counsel, a person who is able to be wise, a person who is able to be patient, that kind of a person is able to draw the intention of the heart out of a man who has his plans, but he keeps them to himself, and then he can't understand why his life isn't working out right. If he goes and listens to a wise man, if he has a wise counselor, if he has somebody of understanding, that person is going to be able to draw out the reason why your life is not going the way it's supposed to and can give you good instruction, can get you back on track. That is my best sense of what verse 5 is saying. If you have a better understanding of it, by all means, please tell me. Verse 6. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty. That Hebrew word can also be undying affection or unfeigned love. 
Many a man proclaims his own loyalty. It's difficult for me at this point not to apply that because in the several years that I've been standing up here doing this, I've had person after person come to me through the years and say, boy, you can count on me. I'm with you no matter what. This is the best thing since sliced bread. Oh, I love that sovereignty of God stuff. Oh, I'm with GCA. No matter what, you can count on me. Solomon, as a king, obviously has had lots of people say that too. Had lots of people come to him. He says, many are men, lots of men, many a man proclaims his loyalty to you. Oh, yeah, you can count on me. But the second half of that verse is, but who can find a trustworthy man? In other words, people say it. People say it all the time, but it's really difficult to find somebody who says it and means it, a trustworthy person. I think I told you John Riesinger in dealing with this very topic years ago said that whenever anybody comes to him and makes professions of undying loyalty, when they come to him and say, oh, Mr. Riesinger, that sovereignty of God stuff, that grace, grace stuff, that, that stuff that you teach, that's just wonderful. And boy, you can count on me. I'll always be with you. I'm right there with you. Boy, no matter what. And his response was always, time and the devil will tell. And that's just a fact. Some people, for various different reasons, have to go on with their lives, or they move, or they get a different job, or for whatever reason. But some people who have dedicated themselves to the word of God, to Christ, and to GCA in particular, I know these days have completely abandoned Christianity. They've walked away from all of it. So Solomon, I'm glad to see, had similar difficulties with human beings. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? Verse 7. A righteous man who walks in his integrity, in other words, who walks out his life in an upright way, How blessed are his sons after him. I think what he's getting at here is sons who have a good father, a father who walks in a righteous way, who walks in his integrity, in his honesty, in his trustworthiness. He says those kids are going to benefit from the fact that that's what their father is like. And, of course, we know that Solomon has said, if you are an upright man, if you are an intelligent, if you are a wise man, that's also going to work to your benefit, whether that's homes or whether that's wealth, whether that's uh, standing within the community. And all of those things are going to be given to your children. All of those things are what your children are going to inherit. So, yet again, your children are blessed if you are a righteous man who walks in integrity. Verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. I think that's very interesting because you know that Solomon, as the judge, as the king, has sat in front of people who are telling all kinds of stories, looking for him to give them 
either justice or at least to rule in their favor, and not everybody is bringing their story to him in an upright way. Some of those people are lying. Some of those people are evil. And he says, as the king sitting on the throne of justice, if I'm sitting on the king's throne, the judgment throne, where if I say you die, you die. If I say you live, you live. When I'm sitting on that throne of justice, all it takes sometimes is for me to look at people and it'll shake them up. It'll expose their evil. It will show their lying plans. It will disperse all evil. A king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. Look at verse 28 of the same chapter. He says, loyalty and truth preserve the king and he upholds his throne by righteousness. So the contrast is loyalty and truth That's how a throne is preserved, through uprightness. That's how the throne is kept intact. And when he sits on that throne, he has to make sure that he's dispensing judgment and he will disperse all evil by looking closely at people, by understanding what they're saying, by engaging with people, by judging between people in a wise way. So you get the contrast there between how the throne is preserved in uprightness and righteousness versus how difficult it is to preserve that throne when you've got evil people coming in front of you and you have to make sure to disperse all of that evil. Obviously not an easy job. We already looked at verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart and I am pure from my sin? Verse 10 says, differing weights and differing measures, both are, toyavah, both are abominable to the Lord. Differing weights and differing measures, again, as I said, when you're buying, selling, trading in the marketplace, everything was determined by weight. And so if you did not have equal weights, if you didn't have equal scales, oftentimes they would have little dense stones And a certain number of stones on one side of the scale would determine how much of a product you got on the other side of the scale. And once you and your customer had agreed that your scales were even, you could still do a bit of chicanery by shaving the edges off a few of those stones so that it would still work to your benefit. And so he says, if you're doing that, if you're cheating your customers... If you're using differing weights, if you're using differing measures that are not legal, then both of those are abominable to the Lord. He says it again right here in this same chapter. Yes, Tom? There are products being made, peanut butter is the first one that comes to mind, where they put it in a jar that looks the same size you've bought all your life, but it's got a bump in the little bottom. indentation so in the you're bottom. Buying less product. Yeah. It looks like the real thing. And the the numbers on the jar are accurate, Mm -hmm. but by giving you a false impression from what you've known all your life, is that part of, does that fit in with this, being abominable? I would say if they are saying on the jar that there's more in there than actually is, then it's abominable. But if they're just making it 
appear to be the same on the shelf as other peanut butter, then no, it's not abominable if they're telling you how much you're actually getting. So leading you to a false impression. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what yeah. this is all about. Yeah, it's marketing at its finest. It's a bit of a gray area. But as long as they're honestly telling you what you're buying and then don't force you to buy it and you opt to buy it knowing what it is, that's, it's kind of on you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, 40 years ago, still have a good friend who's been a pastor for all those years, uh, but we went to visit, and he showed me a book he had just purchased by Chuck Swindoll. He said, look at the print on this thing. It had like a two-inch margin on each side and on the top and the bottom. Yeah. So that it made the pages contained much less, so the book looked like it was a normal-sized book when it really should have been a pamphlet. Yeah. <laughs> and that was not, as far as I can tell, Chuck Swindoll's fault, but whoever is selling it... Yeah, the publisher. ...wants to make it look... Oh, yeah. ...like you're getting a, a heavy volume of theology. And we do indeed see a lot of that everywhere. I've always thought that about the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's like... Wow, that would have made a good three pages. Look, if you would, over at verse 23. <coughs> Solomon says the same thing. Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord, and a false scale is not good. So this is something that Solomon dealt with a lot, I'm sure, in his time as a judge. There were plenty of people who came in front of him to say, that person right there sold me something and said it was this much of it, and it turned out not to be. And so Solomon probably came across this kind of chicanery fairly frequently because he sure brings it up a lot. And, of course, it would be a whole lot better for any society if everybody would just be honest. But that's never going to happen as long as you're dealing with human beings. Look at verse 14 for a minute. This is the other side of the relationship. The person who's actually doing the buying. Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes his way, then he boasts. Okay, that's the way people negotiate all the time. Have you ever watched, I have to say this very carefully, Pawn, P-A-W-N, star. Have you ever seen that show? Have you ever noticed that that's the first thing he does across the board when somebody brings a product in and he really wants it and they're talking about how great it is, the first thing he'll do is find some reason to degrade it so that their expectation comes down. Oh, well, this has got a little scratch. Oh, this is kind of ours. Well, no, you know, this isn't complete. Well, this doesn't have the box. Well, it doesn't. And so the person who's doing the buying will say, you know, it's bad. It's bad. It's not what I expected. I'm gonna, if I'm going to buy that, I'm going to need a better price. I, and, and so they will work hard to get the price down. But then once they've bought it and they've gone their way, then they're going to boast to people. You'll never believe what I paid for this. What a deal I got. And Solomon recognizes that that's the way buying and selling is done. 
both sides work for their own best advantage, whether it's the buyer or the seller. So that's why it's so important to Solomon to make sure that you have a just weight, that you have an appropriate scale, that everything is on the up and up, and then go do your negotiating. Ultimately, the win-win deal is that both people feel like they got the better of the deal. Verse 11, it is by his deeds, talking about a boy, talking about a young man, it is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself if his conduct is pure and right. So if a lad, if a young boy wants to be perhaps recognized within any group of powerful men or even in the court of the king, the way that they can distinguish themselves is by their conduct, by their good actions. I think Solomon, just like everything he's written in here, he said he was writing to his sons so that they would grow up upright, that they would know the proper way to conduct their life. Here he's saying that if you want to be recognized, if you want to be distinguished among all the other boys there are in the kingdom and in the land, the best way to do that is by your conduct, to walk out your life in a pure and a right way. So even as kids are young, Solomon seems completely comfortable with telling them, watch your behavior. So that's instructive, especially since this is the same Solomon who said, if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. So it's good from the time that kids are young to start teaching them the way they ought to go, disciplining them accordingly and teaching them to do what is right. Verse 12, we've already read, the hearing ear, the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. 13, we've already read, do not love sleep lest you become poor. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. Verse 14, we've already looked at, bad, bad, says the buyer. And when he goes his way, then he boasts. And verse 15 says, there is gold and an abundance of jewels, but the lips of knowledge are a more precious thing. He has said variations of this all the way through his Proverbs, that being able to speak wisely, having lips of knowledge, is more precious than gold, more precious than riches. And it's interesting that he, as a man who had such an abundance of wealth and gold and jewels, would be able to say, oh, there's plenty of gold and there's an abundance of jewels. I'm sure there's a lot of people in his kingdom who would argue about that. You say, well, then can't I have some of those? But the point that he's making is that having lips of knowledge, using your mouth in order to instruct, to teach, to guide people, is more precious than having wealth in this life. I'll tell you what. Since we got a late start tonight, and since we had a couple of interruptions, we'll just stop right there, and next week we will begin there. Um, I told you that we've got 12 more chapters, including tonight, to get through in the book of Proverbs. I know I've elongated it by cutting this one in half, but I think since it's getting later, I'm going to let you go so that at no point do you sit out there, start shaking your fist and saying, Jim is a tyrant. Why won't he let us go? So That happens all the time. And uh, So I'm going to let you go. Are there any questions about what you heard tonight? Any more input? No? 
All right then. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.